Hello, and welcome to ABS in Mind. We talk a lot about mortgages on this podcast, but today we're going off the ranch a little to talk about home equity investments. So our guest today is Owen Matthews, who in 2014 helped develop Point, a company that's devised a way for homeowners to monetize the equity in their homes. And there's a lot of that equity, a record 7.3 trillion last year by Black Knight's latest count. Welcome, Owen. Hi, Al. Thanks for having me on today. I think it'd be useful if you could just start off by just defining home equity investments, both from the homeowner's perspective and how the HEIs work with investors. Super. Well, you mentioned the numbers from Black Knight, and I actually think the numbers tower that a little bit. If you if you think about the residential real estate world, you're talking about, you know, eleven trillion of mortgage debt against approximately 30 trillion, you know, 32 trillion by some estimates of residential real estate wealth. So you're, you've about 20 trillion, give or take, of wealth that homeowners own. And traditionally, homeowners access that if they wanted to access that wealth, they did it through borrowing, like sort of traditional debt mechanisms. Mm-hmm. So that could have been a, a first lien position mortgage refinance, so commonly known as a cash out refinance, or through home equity lines of credit, or through home equity loans, which would typically be junior lien and deed of trust or mortgage contracts. Home equity investments are products that have been around, you know, 20, 30 years um, under many different guises and names. So shared equity is a common name for these products, shared appreciation is interchangeable in some terms, but sometimes means something different. But we call them home equity investments, and I think that's taken taken root in the market. Okay, These are technically option contracts. So what's interesting about them is that while they are secured by the home, there is a lien against the property, they're technically option contracts where homeowners are selling options to equity in the home, which sounds... And might sound complicated on a first turn, but actually it's pretty simple. What it effectively means is a homeowner is selling a fraction of the equity in their home or the right to buy a fraction of equity in the home. They get a lump sum today. And, you know, in points case, we can typically do up to 25, maybe even 30% of the property's value in some cases. And in return, the homeowner has no monthly payments and a long duration, a 30-year term on the agreement. And the first question that comes up is, well, when does the investor see some returns and how do they see a return? And they typically see a return under one of a few scenarios. No, number one is if the homeowner subsequently does a cash out refinance, then it would typically pay off this obligation. It doesn't actually have to, but that would be normal. Number two is if the property sold, in which case then it, the investor would automatically be paid off. Number three is the, inv- the homeowner may choose to pay it off at some point as a lump sum payment. And that happens um, quite a lot with small business owners or those who have sporadic large income. And so large commission checks would be an example. So that's the typical in and out of the, the contract. From an investor perspective, then these are not fixed rate or variable rate products. Instead of having a fixed rate or variable rate, what we have with these products is a share in the appreciation or equity in the in the home. So the investor is going to be getting a percentage of the appreciation. 
from some price to the exit price. And I put a big asterisk on that from some price because this will vary with the structure of the agreement. So in some instances, Al, you're going to have mm -hmm. a starting point where the investor starts sharing, which is equal to the current value of the home. And in other cases, you may have the investor sharing from what we'd call a risk-adjusted value, so a value that's slightly below today's value to put a, put a buffer in there, a safety net. So there's many different nuances then as you get into the details on the individual contracts. Tell me a little bit about the need for home equity products uh, at this stage, given the housing market that we've seen over the past year, given the economy that we've seen over the past year can't get away from what's been happening with the pandemic. Give me your latest thoughts on that. You know, that's a that's a really interesting question because I think it's pretty dynamic. These products, as I mentioned, have been around quite a while. Point was founded 2015. So we have five or six years now of originating these and it's it's grown steadily over time. In particular, in the last couple of years has, has grown quite rapidly. And right now, I think this is a real moment for these products. And some of it has to do with the new administration and some of it has to do with the pandemic. So you can look at these products as alternatives to debt. That's that's really what they're about. And there are a lot of instances in homeowners' lives when debt doesn't work. And you can think of that as any instance when you have an ability to repay test that to qualify for traditional loan, which makes a ton of sense. But if you're out of your job or if you're in a period of income uncertainty or if you have a significant expense, you may not want to use debt. And that's that's the fundamental reason these products exist. There are times when debt does not serve you well. And where we see this, particularly in this moment of being um, interest to every, everybody from sort of politicians, new administration personnel, right through to folks in the mortgage world, is two specific applications that are top of mind. And they're very different. Application number one is existing homeowners who are going to be coming out of forbearance or are looking at mortgage delinquencies right now. And there's a lot of variability by race around how um, forbearance programs have been adopted, um, where you know white and Hispanic and Asian homeowners have typically adopted forbearance programs. You're looking at about eight to nine percent of the homeowner population are currently in forbearance programs, and that's gotten down slowly over time. So, probably you know, past couple of months it might have gone down to seven, but for black homeowners, it's a much lower number, and it sort of indicates just lower awareness um, in, among those borrowers about forbearance programs. But the overall delinquency rates are consistent. Coming out of forbearance programs for all homeowners who have been in them, there's going to be a question of well, what happens next. The mortgage servicers and GSEs and FHA obviously are putting together a playbook and will look to what they did in the last crisis, but that's not going to work for every homeowner. And so you're going to have loan modifications en masse for a lot of homeowners. You're going to have homeowners who may be in a position to actually go about and pay off the forbearance amount. But you're going to have a substantial amount of homeowners who have had permanent income changes and who will not be able to get a loan modification or for whom the loan modification will not be enough. So with that in mind, the structure of products, these shared equity products really will become very useful as another tool available 
to mortgage servicers. Owen, are you actually engaging with the servicers at this point? We are. Yeah. So we have been working with servicers over the past six to nine months specifically around this. And one thing that's obviously happened is everybody's staring at the forbearance clock and then it gets moved. So I think this is top of mind for servicers, but they obviously are looking at the clock and going, okay, we've got three more months or possibly even, you know, realistically six more months of this. So that's part number one. It's it's not the it's not coming up tomorrow, but everybody's planning for it. The second part of that, but we actually are working with a lot of um, non-agency portfolios right now who are trying to solve for this problem and in many ways have to figure it out in, more, in a more difficult fashion because they don't get the same direction that the, um, the agency lenders and servicers get from the GSEs. In parallel with that, we are um, looking um, at how we could work with the GSE and FHA portfolio lenders um, and servicers because that's going to be the crux of the challenge. It's going to be those mainstream homeowners. And, and we think this is going to be a meaningful part of the solution set as they go about um, the Homeowner Assistance Fund um, that was established last year and deploying that effectively to make sure it reach, reaches the right homeowners. Okay. I mean, you lay out a pretty good runway for these products, but can you tell us a little bit about what the take-up has been thus far? It is. I'm April? actually, if you're okay with it, I'll take a detour into it because I only talked about one of the one of the use cases, oh. and there was a second one. <laughs> sure. And the second use case that's really top of mind for a lot of folks is is to do with down payments for new home buyers, and this goes back to you know, especially with the new administration coming in, racial uh, inequality and an equity in home ownership in particular um, is top of mind. And you can sort of go, well, what are what are the solutions for solving, for example, just take straight up the wealth gap. Uh-huh. Home ownership remains one of the few ways to build wealth um, on a, in a reliable, repeatable fashion in this country. And there have been a significant effort and it, you know, over the last 50 years to introduce products to make home ownership more affordable for first-time buyers of all races, but particularly homeowners from minorities. And most of that has involved variations on debt and then stretching that the, the credit limits as much as you can. And I think, you know, everybody has discovered what the what the boundaries are there, the, the solid boundaries. And then to get folks in who are doing low down payment, the traditional solution has been mortgage insurance. So whether on the FHA side, that's MMIF, or on the GSE side, private mortgage insurance. And in a few other countries, they've taken a different tack, in particular in the last five to 10 years. And I'd look here to, you know, we can look to our neighbors in Canada, but also Australia and the UK in particular have very large government supported first time buyer down payment programs that they use a shared equity structure. And the reason they do that is it's it's a better wealth builder. It, it ends up being a better use of government funds than, you know, than an insurance product. And you can think of, you know, in either scenario, well, especially in the case of a mortgage insurance product, it is in fact effectively a tax. It's a tax that you put on somebody in order to have a buffer in place in case something goes wrong. But the interesting thing is you can, you can provide that same solution in the form of a shared equity contract to a borrower, but it's not a grant. Like that's that's this is the really effective thing. This cash will get recycled, and it will get recycled in a um, inflation-adjusted way. So this becomes pretty quickly self-sustaining program. 
that can provide the steady stream of first-time buyers who are coming in typically without the support of you know, the friends and family money that some folks are able to benefit from, but many are not, and is able to provide a steady stream of down payment cash over many generations. What you see with these programs is that most of the first-time buyers use that shared equity program for four to six years. And this is sort of consistent with our own experience with the home, existing homeowners. And um, although there's a 30-year term on the contract, the weighted average life on these is typically running at six to eight years, even on the long duration. And that's consistent for um, what has been observed for first-time buyers in international countries, but also existing homeowners in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And so that's we think that's going to be a meaningful part of the future down payment landscape. It's a complement to private mortgage insurance and probably the MMIF. You're not talking about a wholesale replacement, but it's mm-hmm. a very meaningful complement. It's going to have a lot of impact on first-time buyer affordability. Oh, and I didn't think this conversation was going to go in this direction, but uh, are we talking about a potential ESG angle here? Yeah, why not? <laughs> um, well, I, I, I wouldn't be um, so bold as to just jump in on the ESG just for the sake of it. But mm-hmm. the reality is, yes, like this is this is top of mind for policymakers, I think, on both sides of the aisle to think about how the wealth gap is going to be divided. And frankly, there's there's one really important part of the policy here that I think is overlooked, which is the importance of getting people on the homeownership ladder early. Um, and the reason for that is if you do, and this is this is happening in the US, which is the later and later first time homebuyers get on the homeownership ladder, the later they're earning, the later they're get they're developing earned equity. And that's really expensive when they get old. That's just the long and short of it. It's not really about, it's sort of about the home price appreciation. That's nice, but it's actually about the principal payoff. That is, that's the crux of this. Um, And it's the two in parallel, you know, if home prices continue on an appreciating just with inflation and there's principal pay down for that first time buyer, buyer, they're much better financially equipped for a retirement. Um, otherwise, you're going to end up with folks who maybe, you know, if they become a homeowner in their late 30s and realistically in the economic environment we're looking at, you know, they might want to work into their 60s and maybe in some cases 70s, but they're probably not going to have the earning capacity in their 50s, late 50s or early 60s. So they're getting a sh- much shorter window in which to actually build up that earned equity that's so important for your retirement, especially in a country like the U.S. Yeah, I mean, it's easy to sort of argue that there's a so an element of social good here. It's just a matter of just like a lot of other things in the ESG space. How do you measure it? I think these things are very easy to measure. You, you, you actually go and like the U.K. is a great example where in their program, they looked at the homeowners who availed of their down payment program. And it's, it's a substantial one. So they deployed. Mm-hmm. 10 billion dollars 10 billion pounds so you can think of that as 15 you know billion dollars give or take exchange rates and over a six-year period so for a country that's you know population wise about a a quarter of what the u.s that's that's a big program by any measure Mm -hmm. and what they saw is they reduced the home buying age from an average age of 37 from those who did not avail of a program to an average age of 31 for those who did. Hmm. And so so that's just a big mark. And then in other countries, you just, and the UK has this as well, 
they did not design this to address racial inequity and but you can and so some really promising ideas that have come out in the us which you know crl the center for responsible lending have some great ideas around this more grant structure but it's you can design first generation home buyer programs to really try and get the funds in the hands of you know folks who haven't built up any intergenerational wealth and try to address it that way so the measurement is key. I think, you know, if you're going to be deploying government funds in any fashion, but in particular this fashion, you want to put the measurement in place. Um, but there's a good amount of evidence out there already. And the academic research is is very strong in this domain. Related okay. to that, like I, I know I'm jumping between two stools here, but then the okay. on the existing homeowners, there's some fantastic research coming out of the last crisis. Like you've got to think about, you know, what happens when it doesn't go well for an existing homeowner, but they have equity? There was a fund that Treasury established called the Hardest Hit Fund, you know, which is, you know, the fund, these funds are still out there. But um, Stephanie Moulton at, um, in Ohio did a bunch of research and she looked at this from a really interesting angle, which is for those homeowners who are eligible for Hardest Hit Fund funds. They might have been in states where they were directly, their neighbors might have been in states where that were not eligible for hardest hit fund relief. And so she was able to measure then how this helped with not just defaulting homeowners, but helping avoid foreclosure. Mm-hmm. And these funds brought about a 40% reduction in foreclosure. And these aren't, these again, are not grants typically. These are funds that get recycled and ultimately get paid off. But the the reason this is so important for existing homeowners, and get back to your question around why do you need these products, is debt does not work in those instances. If you have a life event, you, you're not going to qualify for a loan. And the worst thing that happens when you, whether you lose your income for two weeks or for four months or six months, although that's a relatively short duration problem, if you lose your income for six months, you, you're probably going to lose your home unless you've built up significant reserves. And we know that most homeowners and certainly most Citizens, you know, income earning citizens don't have four to six months of reserves. You know, the numbers are famously running around two weeks for most for 40 percent plus of of U.S. adults uh, over 18. So in the absence of reserves, your access to your home equity reserves is really critical. So we think this is a very meaningful tool going forward. We do this today with a lot of homeowners, Al, already. You know, we bring the private capital, we bring the Wall Street capital to solve this problem for a lot of homeowners. But it is a significant problem and can be solved at much larger scale um, going forward now that it's been proven out, not just with organizations like Point, but with great research from folks who've looked at the hardest hit fund and um, Great Recession and funds that have been made available to these homeowners. You mentioned scale. That's something that uh, investors always want to see. Are these reasons that you've been laying out exactly the reasons that investors talk about with you when they get involved? Yes, I think it's. there's been a lot of activity. Um, we first announced our an, an investor, a private investor, in 2018, and that was Adelaide Capital who sort of got in early, I think, into the asset class. And we've announced a couple of investors since then, but most of them have stayed private. And okay. we have a roster of, I would say, very savvy investors on our platform. Typically, it's a mixture of residential REIT and MBS investment firms and hedge funds. And very, very strong organizations. I think what's really, really building up ahead of steam in this 
product class is that now you have six or seven years of point, you know, in particular having originations under its belt. And so the prepaid curves are a lot more understandable now. Um, they're, they're empirical as opposed to modeled. Um, and also we have line of sight on, you know, for securitizations. So what, when exactly they happen, we, we don't have a date yet, but we do anticipate securitizations in the next, you know, six months and hopefully much sooner. So I think that is demonstrating to the market at large that this product is not just here to stay, but is ready to go mainstream and having that path from um, origination and the origination engine being available there, there through the capital, build up some of these assets and to subsequently securitize them is very attractive. I want to throw some numbers out there for me, if you would, whatever you are comfortable sharing in terms of originations thus far this year, whatever. Sure. I don't know that I have permission to share any numbers, um, okay. but I'll probably talk broadly about where we believe the industry is right, right now. So, you know, I put the finger in the air and say point is probably the leading originator by, by a distance at this point in time. But where we understand volume to be across different originator, originators is probably approaching 50 million a month. And our our expectation is that point alone will probably be at that point within the next nine to 12 months. And this, you know, within 18 months, it will be annualized a billion plus. And that's assuming that the source of capital don't change. Obviously, there is some anticipation that there might be program government funds directed towards programs like this, in which case you're talking about uh, order of magnitude difference, but they would be highly targeted programs and wouldn't displace the private capital. Has it ever been disclosed, or maybe it'll be disclosed here for the first time, how much an investor can make with one of these HEIs? It has been disclosed, or I, I'm probably doing it certainly for the first time in a podcast. Um, different investors have different views on this, um, but I think most investors would model this at somewhere between an 8 and 12% on levered. Um, leverage is available for these assets, and with the securitization, you know, a, a savvy investor would probably be able to get this to high teens, low 20s and um, through a combination of those executions. But the unlevered returns is anticipated. You know, a conservative investor is going to put it at eight and an aggressive investor is going to put it at 12. And that will be net IRRs. Well, I know that's got to be attractive. One of the investors I know is in these investments. I mean, I basically made a pivot with some of its capital from the subprime mortgage play that it had since the financial crisis. You know, that's dried up for the most part and they're looking for new ways to deploy the capital. Yeah, I think it's this healthy mix as well you see between the savvy MBS investors and the ESG investors who look at this as products that are demonstrably doing doing good. And that, by that, I mean, I, I have never seen such attention to detail um, being placed on homeowner education, and, but it makes a ton of sense because these are new products. And this is something we've invested enormously in point. And it's not easy. I think any consumer facing financial organization will appreciate this. It's not easy to maintain great customer reviews when you're a consumer finance organization. I think ours are stellar. Whether you're looking at the BBB or Trustpilot, you see these exceptional reviews and there's not a smattering of them. There are there are hundreds and hundreds and they're from real customers. And to be honest, that's because we invest so much in the education upfront. So that's the number one 
emphasis that we put into the application flow and our discussions with homeowners is education, education, education. Um, and then we track the outcome of borrowers. So, you know, are these products actually doing good? And, and they really are. And so we track that on a number of different dimensions, not just does the borrower get back on their feet and subsequently exit, but you want to look at how does their credit score move over time. And so we'll see a lot of positive FICO drift on the product. So we're helping homeowners bottom lines in a, in a very material way. And it, it feels good to do good. You know, and I think that reflects in the investor community as well. It feels good to make money, I'm sure, but um, it really helps that if you're putting the product in the hands of homeowners who value it, appreciate it, and where it makes a positive impact on their life. I mean, it seems to me from talking to investors that they're in a position where if you originate it, they will buy it. So it's just mostly at this point, a matter of scaling up this opportunity for them. Would you agree with that? I think that's the case. Yes, there's um, there's a lot of capital coming in. I think it's scaling up responsibly is, is the critical caveat to that. Um, you, we, we've, we have the benefit maybe of six years of really building it out. And we did it very methodically in the first three and four years. And so we were able to put in place the internal structures to just do it well and make the investments in, you know, in technology and compliance so that we, we can give investors confidence that they're buying what they, what, what they believe to be buying. So that's the case. So now it is, um, scaling on the origination side. We we're good at that. It's we're a very data driven organization, have incredibly strong um, marketing um, organization. So that's that's something that's really humming along. Um, but you can't avoid. I should highlight this: is you just can't avoid talking to homeowners about the product. So when you talk about scaling, there is an aspect of this of you still got to get um, butts in seat um, and train them up to educate homeowners about the product and talk them through the application process. Because this is ultimately, it is an investment in a home and it's a big transaction for most homeowners. So we pay attention to that, put a lot of um, effort and investment into the education on the homeowner side on our own team so that they can have a, have a top-notch experience. And for homeowners to, to honestly, I'll figure out if the product mm -hmm. is for them or not. Oh, and I wanted to close this up with a question about what Point is doing to expand the reach of these HEIs. You've already laid out a lot of possible uses, but are there other things in the horizon? Yes, I think there's a, a lot of interesting stuff going on. For a few years now, I, I generally would sort of put us adjacent to affordable housing and trying to trying to make homeownership more valuable is how we put the mission of the company. One area that I'm particularly interested in, um, and we've, we're again making significant investments, has to do with home improvements. In particular, in starting in California a few years ago, there were regulations introduced to make accessory dwelling units more buildable. These are accessory dwelling units for those who, who aren't in California or states that use this um, nomenclature are backyard units, granny flats. And the reason that they're so important in many urban areas is that aside, apart from significant zoning changes, it's one of the few ways to add density. And so you have some cities like Vancouver and, you know, to a lesser degree, Portland that are held up as the Portland, uh, the, as the poster child of how to do these. Vancouver, you know, somewhere between 30 and 40% of properties in Vancouver probably have a backyard unit, a permitted mm, backyard unit. Okay. 
So in California, it's become a big um, initiative to add density to address affordability, particularly in the big urban areas. So your Bay Area, Los Angeles, San Diego and Sacramento. And our product class can be very important to that. And so we're spending a lot of time not just working with there's a swath of, you know, ADU developers and manufacturers now but also thinking about how to string together the financial solutions so that homeowners can build these um, before they're cash flowing and then maybe get out quickly once the property is built, once it's cash flowing, get out into a traditional cheaper debt product. So we, we think of our product as being very flexible. I guess the value that it offers to homeowners. So stringing together um, a home equity investment solution with a HELOC in order to build a backyard unit is, is one of those use cases. But more broadly, home improvement is a big category for us. And we're investing more in working with people in the home improvement space, you know, who have a lot of experience and bring financial solutions to homeowners who are looking to do different work on their home. Has an HEI been used to build an ADU? Oh, yes. Many times. A lot of stories around that. And <laughs> probably for a whole other podcast. That really is. I mean, I've I've done a couple of stories on ADUs and legislation in California and the local regulations. It's a minefield, very difficult to, to go through. So Yes, there's a lot going on. I, do, I will say we introduced as well, we have our home equity investment product, but earlier this year, we introduced our, our second product, which is a more traditional HELOC, but it is targeted towards serving that market in particular. And, and some of the motivations behind this are being able to serve homeowners across the credit spectrum. So whether it's a homeowner coming in with an off-prime or subprime credit score who needs to release some equity in their home or someone coming in with a pristine credit score in the 800s who just wants um, you know affordable debt and a really excellent technology execution so that it's really low friction, points able to serve them. But targeting that towards ADU is sort of part of our mission over the coming coming years so that we can, you know, help with the affordable housing. Well, Owen, we'll have to catch up with you another time, maybe towards the end of the year. But in the meantime, I just want to thank you for spending all this time with us and shedding some light on the home equity investments. Mm-hmm.